uh, as I said at the beginning of the night, we are in the middle of this series on Exodus. Uh, we haven't given it up. Um, I've wanted to at times because uh, it just gets stranger and stranger. Um, but I hope that you have, uh, even in just the couple weeks that we've been doing this, taken something away that you didn't know before or hadn't connected before about this ancient story. Um, <clears throat> tonight, as I said earlier, we, we're covering the actual 10th plague uh, also known as the Passover, and the course of events that are set off from the Passover itself. Um, those things all establish some of the most foundational religious observances in the Jewish faith that have persisted for thousands of years. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at what those are, and then we're going to fast forward a thousand years and explore how those events, how these events in Exodus and the observances that come from uh, what we're going to be looking at tonight, how they all connect to Jesus in a pretty profound way. Or at least I f think it's pretty profound, and hopefully if I do my job well, maybe you will too. Uh, if you remember from last time, we looked at the, uh, all the plagues, uh, all the way up to the 10th plague. And we saw that through the plagues, God is attacking and defeating, or at least showing himself to be more powerful than the gods of Egypt. In order to liberate his people, God has to defeat the gods of Egypt which is what each plague is all about. Each one is a different attack on a different aspect or a different god in the Egyptian pantheon. And we got all the way up to the last plague. If you remember, Moses warns Pharaoh for the last time, let my people go, or else the firstborn son of all your people, including your son, Pharaoh, and the firstborn males of all your livestock will be killed. Pharaoh again says no and tells Moses, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And Moses says, okay, that sounds, uh, that sounds great. See you later. And that's where we left off. And that's where we're going to pick up again tonight. We're starting in chapter 12 of Exodus. Um, this section of Exodus, like a couple others, gets a little messy. So I'm going to be jumping around a little bit uh, to help it flow more logically. So if you are following along in the Bible, you might be like, where did he just go? Because I'm going to skip over some sections that, um, well, hopefully we'll get to talk about at some point that it feels like kind of just got inserted in there that maybe should have gone somewhere else. It's not a big deal. You're going to understand the logic of it this way. All right. So this is Exodus 12, starting at the very beginning. It will be up on the screens if you need, if you want to look up there. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be, the, is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of, number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So if back in this time you, say, uh, had Trevor as a neighbor, you needed a really, really big lamb goes without saying. These animals you choose must be a year old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or from goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all of the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, you are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made out with, without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, because why would you ruin it like that? But roast it over a fire. 
with the heads, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. That little bit about <laughs> kind of like what you should be wearing to eat basically just means like you should be ready to leave at any second while you're eating this thing. <clears throat> On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Okay, so there's kind of a lot going on here, right? First, I mentioned last week, uh, I mentioned this last week, but God here flat out says why he's been doing what he's doing with these plagues, culminating in this 10th plague, um, is, is bringing judgment on the Egyptian gods. And with this 10th plague specifically, we talked about this last week, he's attacking the god Osiris, who's one of the high gods of Egypt who's in charge of death. So by killing only Egypt's firstborn and not Israel's, God is showing that it's he, not Osiris, that controls death. But what's the deal with all this firstborn son stuff? Like why, why are they the only ones that get targeted here? Uh, in the ancient Near East, your firstborn son, many of you probably know this, your firstborn son was how your line or your family, uh, your legacy continued. So in many ways, your firstborn son was how your life persisted after death. Your firstborn son was seen as the continuation of you, which is why people were so distraught if they couldn't have a son or if their firstborn son was taken away. Your firstborn son was the symbol of your future. So in many ways, your firstborn son was everything. It symbolized everything about your family. The hope of everyone that came before you was now resting on this one person, which makes me really feel great that I'm not a firstborn son because that sounds like way too much pressure. Um, but so to kill Egypt's firstborn son is to really, to, to completely decimate their legacy and their future, all their firstborn sons. That's what's going on here in this 10th plague. But God is going to protect his people, Israel's people, from this happening to them. So he gives them these really detailed instructions about how uh, the people are to slaughter and then prepare and then eat these animals uh, while being prepared to leave at any minute, like I said. And then he says to use the blood in a specific way that will protect them from this 10th plague. The blood of the sacrificed lamb on their doors is a symbol of God's protection of his people. Keep that in mind. Picking back up, we're going to go uh, chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some, on, some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Side note, well, who's the destroyer all of a sudden? That's interesting. Uh, this is something that, like, if you want to look into it, people go, like, crazy over. There's so many theories about what this is. There's lots of things written about this. Sometimes in these stories and even other places where... Um, the Passover is recounted. Sometimes it's God who's doing the killing of the firstborns. Sometimes it's an angel. Sometimes it's this thing called the destroyer, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and actually, uh, it's not pretty cool. It's terrifying. And uh, it's 
literally what my son Apollo's name means, the destroyer. Um, I didn't need to say that. It just makes me feel weird when I read this story. God's going to keep him out. But uh, you can go crazy if you want to look into that. We don't have time for that. I've already taken up too much time, but it's something that's interesting. Okay, picking back up. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passes over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So here, God kind of explains what to do for the first Passover, but then we're told that the people should continue doing this every year, establishing this yearly tradition of observing a Passover meal. Why? The destroyer's not still out there. Why do they have to keep doing this every year? And it says pretty clearly, so that they won't forget how God conquered death, conquered this God that was in charge of death, and protected them from it. That's the whole reason for doing this every year. Picking back up in verse 29. So at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you You and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you have said, and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. This is something that God told Moses really early on was going to happen. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. They were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. So, there, the 10th plague, it happens. There's all this lead up to it, and then it's like a paragraph that goes into very little explanation of what happens. Just like, boom, it happens. The firstborn male and male human and animals are killed. Pharaoh's finally, finally convinced. And he's just like, guys, you have to get out of here now. Like, not only can you leave and take everyone with you and take all of your stuff with you, like, you have to go right now. So the people rush out of Egypt so quickly that they don't even have time, we're told, to to add yeast to their bread so that it will rise. They have to just leave with this yeastless, unleavened bread. But they finally left Egypt, right? They're finally free. Uh, So that's actually the end of chapter 12. We're going to pick back up in chapter 13, but there's some messiness in chapter 13. Who would have thought? So uh, if you are following along again, you're going to notice that I'm slightly reordering reordering things. I'm going to move the first two verses to someplace else. I wouldn't normally do this. I don't recommend doing this with the Bible, but it doesn't change what's being said, and it makes it 
easier to understand by flowing more logically. And if you're upset about that and want to talk about it, I'm happy to do that. This is chapter 13, starting at verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, this day that we have just left Egypt. The day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and all those other people, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe the ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast is to, in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is, is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. So we've already had Passover established. This is establishing what, what's called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Again, they were rushed out of Egypt so quickly that they didn't have time to put yeast in their bread. So they had to eat unleavened bread. This, like, cracker that we're, if you've taken communion, you're familiar with, this bread is, <laughs> it's better when there's yeast in it, right? But now this, like, flat, kind of gross bread is, is, becomes this beautiful symbol of God's deliverance to them. They got out of Egypt, and they were driven out so fast that this is what they have with them. This is the symbol of God's deliverance. So every year at the same time that people eat unleavened bread for a week. Why? It says, tell your sons that it reminds us that the Lord brought us out of Egypt to remind us every year of what God did for us so that we won't forget. The rest of chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belong to me, whether human or animal. Moses said to the people, after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised uh, as He promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you don't redeem it, break its neck. Yikes. Uh, redeem every firstborn among your sons. Why are donkeys so special that you don't, you don't, that you can substitute a lamb for them and you don't have to kill your firstborn male donkey. There's a lot of conjecture about that. The kind of common consensus is that donkeys were so important because they were beasts of burden that uh, you just didn't even mess with killing them. But it's just interesting that donkeys get thrown in there. Uh, it, picking back up, in, in days to come, when your son asks, what does this mean? Why are you, why do we sacrifice our firstborn animals? Why do you consecrate or redeem your firstborn sons? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So, there's kind of some weird things going on here. Uh, Firstborn of anything, already at this point in Israel's history, already belonged to God. This is something that's established back in Genesis where the first fruits of anything are given to God in gratitude of God's provision. 
the whole idea of tithing is, is still based on this idea of returning the best or first part of, of what we receive back to God. That's why the firstborn uh, male livestock are offered as sacrifices. And that doesn't just get wasted, like people eat that. It's not just like kill these things for no reason. In the same way, the act of consecrating uh, firstborn sons back to God is an act of gratitude. It's an act of trust in God's goodness and provision for the future, for your legacy. Because if you remember, firstborn sons are your future. In addition to that, now, coming out of Egypt, there's new significance in why they would consecrate their firstborn sons, and that this is a reminder that God spared them. God spared their firstborn sons when he saved them from Egypt. So they're supposed to continually do this to remind themselves, God saved us. God liberated us. God brought us out of Egypt. Okay, so... In this 10th plague and the subsequent rush out of Egypt, we have these three different acts of worship or or observances or remembrances or rituals, whatever you want to call them. These three different things being established, each with unique symbols. There's the Passover, where God conquered death and protected us, and the blood of the lamb on their doorways is a symbol of God's protection. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The unleavened bread is a symbol of God's deliverance out of Egypt. And then we have sacrificing and consecrating the firstborn. Uh, Sacrificing our firstborn livestock and consecrating our firstborn sons symbolizes uh, our gratitude to God for restoring our future and our trust in him for our future. And the point of all three of these things, we read it several times and we already said it. It says over and over and over again, when your children ask you, why are you doing this? Because they're going to (laughs) tell them, It reminds us that the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery, in powerful ways. So all three of these are meant to remind the people of God that God loves us so much that he will conquer death for us. He will conquer death to liberate us. Yahweh liberates with power. Remind each other of this. Teach your kids this. Pass this good news from generation to generation so that we never forget what has been done for us. Okay, so given this information about these foundational observances and acts of worship, I want to show you something. We're going to skip ahead a few thousand years or so, and I'm going to read you some parts of Luke 22. I'm going to kind of jump around like I've been doing. This is the day before Jesus is crucified, okay? Luke 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Take this and divide it among you. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What's happening here? This is Jesus instituting the act uh, of worship and remembrance uh, or sometimes called the sacrament of communion. And it's against the backdrop of Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, which you might've noticed 
even in the New Testament, it's kind of changed a little bit. When things first start out in Exodus, there's the Passover, which is its own distinct thing, and then the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which is its own distinct thing. They start, the start of Passover, or the start of the Festival of Unleavened Bread is the same day that Passover is. So over time, they just kind of like combine these two things together to the point where in Jesus's day, it was the day of unleavened bread on which Passover happens. Not that important, but it's just interesting to note. Uh, In what Jesus is doing here on Passover, on the backdrop of remembering God bringing Egypt out of Israel, there's a lot going on. And the first thing I want you to notice is that this... uh, the celebration of Exodus is embedded into our celebration of communion. We have the symbol of the blood of God's protection in, in the wine, and we have the bread that symbolizes God's deliverance. But Jesus like, reappropriates these symbols. He takes these powerful observances and, and symbols of Exodus and like levels them up. He takes the wine, symbolizing the blood, uh, the Passover blood that symbolized God's protection of his people, and he says, This is my blood. This is now a symbol of my new covenant with you, that my blood will protect you. Then he takes the bread and says, this bread that symbolizes, I mean, he doesn't literally say this, but this is what's going on. This bread that symbolizes your ancestors' deliverance from captivity is my body. My body will be the sign of your deliverance. And I don't think he's talking about him giving up his body to be handed over to death. He means his resurrected body will be the sign of our deliverance. Symbolized in this meal in the bread. Because again, what is happening here? Just like in the Passover, God is conquering death. In Exodus, he's conquering Osiris, the high God of Egypt who controls death. With Jesus, through his death and resurrection, God conquers death itself. In the Passover, God freed his people from slavery and oppression by conquering death, seen through the death of the firstborn of of their enemies, and during which God's people are protected by sacrificial blood of a lamb. In communion, we're reminded that God rescues us from sin by conquering death through the death and resurrection of his firstborn son, not a surrogate firstborn son, his firstborn son, Christ. And again, God's people are protected by the sacrificial blood of a lamb who is also Christ. Both Passover and communion are are about remembering that God loves us so much that he is willing to conquer death, to liberate us. And he says, do this to remember. Pass on the good news. Remind yourself. Teach your kids that, that Yahweh liberates in powerful ways. Do this to remember. Do this to be grateful over and over and over again. Uh, you guys in the band can, can come on up, unless you're over bowling at Moe's. Um, <clears throat> so communion is meant for us to regularly be reminded and remember the lavish love and grace of God, seen most clearly through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. Uh, in a minute, we're going to sing a song together. If you're at home, feel free to grab some uh, communion elements. If you're here in the room um, and you're ready, when you're ready, come forward. Uh, As soon as I'm done talking, there's going to be communion elements here. Feel free to grab a piece of bread and a cup of wine or a cup of juice, and then take them back to your seat. And after we finish singing, we'll all take communion together.
And uh, if you're a parent of a child in elementary school and you want them to observe communion with you, please feel free to go check them out uh, from their class at this time. But I want you to remember, maybe more than anything about what we're remembering tonight, is that it does not matter what you have done. It does not matter how terrible you think you are or the awful things that have gone on in your life that you've done or that someone has done to you. None of it has to separate you from God anymore. God loves you more than whatever those things are. And the symbol of a communion reminds us of, of God dying to be with us again, to reestablish that relationship, to conquer whatever sin happens to be in our lives. So there's no reason for it to separate you from God anymore.